Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. December 2nd, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in its first Second Amendment case in nearly a decade. But will the court even wind up deciding the merits of the case? On this deep dive episode, we take a look at the dispute in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association against City of New York, the issues it raises, and its potential mootness. And just a little note here that Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City and majority owner of Bloomberg Law's parent company, serves on the advisory board of Every Town for Gun Safety which filed an amicus brief in this case in support of strong gun restrictions. And we're going to bring on constitutional law professor Josh Blackman to discuss the case in a bit, but first we're going to set the stage. So the Second Amendment says, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, end quote. But there haven't been many cases addressing the Second Amendment throughout the Supreme Court's history. In 2008, the court decided D.C. against Heller, ruling that the amendment provides the right to self-defense unrelated to militia activities, in that case dealing with the right to self-defense in the home. In 2010, in a case called McDonald, the court incorporated the Second Amendment right to the states, meaning it applies to the states too. But since then, gun rights proponents have been fighting to get another case to the Supreme Court to try and expand the right further, with no success. Justice Thomas, for example, has complained that gun rights have been relegated to second-class status. Enter New York City. It had a pretty strict gun regulation, one of the strictest in the country, Challenger said. It said someone with a premises license for a handgun could only take the handgun to and from authorized shooting ranges or clubs within the city, unloaded, in a locked container, carrying the ammunition separately. So gun owners with premises licenses sued the city. They wanted to take their guns outside the city to shooting ranges and target practice. One of the plaintiffs wanted to take it to a second home in upstate New York. Lower courts ruled against their Second Amendment and other claims, and last January, the Supreme Court granted review, and the justices were set to take on how far the right extends outside of the home. But after the Supreme Court granted review, New York changed its gun laws, so now the city says there's nothing left to argue about. And appropriately for our podcast, the city says there's no case or controversy, as it says in the Constitution, for the court to decide. But the challengers and gun proponents and the Trump administration, which is joining them, are still pressing for the Supreme Court to issue a ruling. Well, thanks for that lay of the land. Let's bring in our guest who is Josh Blackman, a law professor at South Texas College of Law, Houston, who is a frequent amicus filer at the Supreme Court, but did not file an amicus brief in this case. Well, thanks so much for being on, Josh. Thank you for having me back. Before we get into the merits of the case, we wanted to touch a little bit on the mootness question. And I guess, you know, the obvious question is now that the law has changed, why isn't this case moot? There are generally a couple exceptions to the mootness doctrine. Um, One exception is a principle known as voluntary cessation. That is, if the government voluntarily stops complying with some illegal act, um, there may be cases where the court keeps jurisdiction. Why? Well, because the government stops some illegal act today, they may resume it tomorrow uh, after the litigation is over. Um, So there are some situations where the court maintains jurisdiction over what seems like a moot controversy, 
to prevent uh, uh, the government from voluntarily resuming the legal actions later. Uh, there's another circumstance where a case might appear to be moot but isn't, and that's based on claims for damages. Um, if the parties are seeking damages for past illegal conduct, uh, even if the laws stop going forward, uh, the parties can still go back and seek uh, uh, monetary compensation. Um, in this case, we have both claims are live. The plaintiffs have, have asserted voluntary cessation is applicable. They've also asserted that the government has simply repealed the law to evade SCOTUS review, which is probably true. Um, the Solicitor General has filed a different brief and argued that claims for damages might be feasible. Um, it's not clear that the parties even sought damages, uh, which is always a wrinkle when you're making a claim for things that aren't in the record, um, but the government says damages could be available. And because they could be available, that defeats the claim for mootness. So I think those are the two leading arguments over why the court would, in theory, maintain jurisdiction. So, Josh, you mentioned the possibility that the city had and the state changed their laws in light of the pending Supreme Court case. But even if that was their rationale, there'd be nothing wrong with that, right, in terms of the mootness analysis, would there? Um, generally not. Uh, there are some cases that suggest um, the government gets in trouble when they try to change their regime to try to avoid appellate review. Um, but I think in this case, the facts are pretty unique. Uh, the city has more or less changed its rules to make it impossible to change it back. I think the state is involved as well. So I don't think there's likely a chance uh, that, that this law gets reanimated. Um, I think what frustrates the plaintiffs is it's so obvious what happened here. The city defended the law in the district court. They defended the law in the court of appeals. But now they're refusing to defend in the Supreme Court. Why? They want to avoid an adverse judgment from the Supreme Court that promotes Second Amendment rights. So I think the decision here leaves a bad taste in everyone's mouth, uh, but I, I, I think it's probably moot. Um, I suspect the court will probably dump the case shortly after the argument. Well, so you mentioned that this was something that kind of got up some of the heckles of the people who brought the case, but it hasn't been limited to the parties, the, the strong reactions to mootness. We saw um, kind of a, a pretty amazing brief by Senator Whitehouse in this case. Can you tell us a little bit about that and kind of your reaction to it? Senator Whitehouse has been um, very critical of the Roberts Court. Um, he refers to the five conservative members of the court as the Roberts Five, and he routinely criticizes them as simply voting in political fashion, that they always vote together as a sort of right-wing block. Um, Senator Whitehouse took another step, and he filed an amicus brief in the uh, New York uh, a Pistol Rifle Club case, drawn by a couple other Democratic senators. Um, the amicus brief asserted with very little uh, uh, tact that the court is political and that if they, uh, if, the, if the majority decides that this case should go forward, that's not moot, then it'll prove that the court's political. And then we get to the so what next part. Um, and, and White House basically says we should take a look at the court and take a look at its composition and see what kind of changes we can make. Um, <clears throat> this was a pretty poorly veiled attack uh, on the court, um, and perhaps will serve as a prelude to the uh, our favorite notion of court packing that is expanding the size of the court in the future. Um, I'm not certain that White House actually meant it like that, but it was pretty obvious that if the court hears the case despite the mootness arguments, then they'll the Democrats will take some action. 
you know, Kimberly and Jordan, I can't imagine this brief is very effective. I don't think anyone in the court actually cares about it. This is mostly a, 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 a political document for the public. Um, but I think this brief signals that the senators are willing to publicly attack the court if they issue rulings that they think are indefensible. And so on the flip side of that, are we to think then if the court does wind up finding the case moot that then Senator Whitehouse will be applauding the Roberts court going forward as a being a proper court? Uh, I think that's unlikely. <laughs> um, Senator Whitehouse routinely attacks the Robert Five. Uh, if only we had a Roberts Five, the, the, the five conservatives tend to vote apart quite a bit. Um, in a number of cases, last year you had Justice Roberts in the majority, you had Justice Kavanaugh in the majority with the liberals, you had uh, Justice Gorsuch, you even had Justice Alito. I think the Roberts Five is pretty inconsistent. The the, the, the Ginsburg Four, though, they are a team. Oh, man, they squad goals right there. Uh, they, they vote together quite quite a bit. Um, but none of that really matters because White House isn't talking about um, any sort of principle. He's attacking decisions he disagrees with, which is why I can't imagine the court takes his, his brief very seriously. So can we step back here and talk a little bit of procedure? Um, because... Some people were expecting that maybe this case would get dropped before oral argument. This mootness issue came up before they had scheduled uh, the case for oral argument. Um, but the court set it on uh, for argument in December. Wondering what is the process uh, for the court to decide to moot a case? Do we know what kind of the voting has to be? Is it something like a dig, perhaps? Yeah, I think, I think Kimberly, to dismiss a case as improvidently granted, what's known as a dig, uh, takes five votes. Uh, it's effectively a majority opinion um, where, where a majority has to decide to get rid of the case. Um, but what's unique about a dig is that there's no published opinion. They simply just issue a one-sentence order dismissing it. Um, it's possible another justice could dissent from the denial. Uh, I'd expect, to be frank, a dismissal shortly after the case is argued. Um, I think it's unlikely the court holds on to this case Um there are many other Second Amendment cases that are far more meaningful. They don't need this case to decide by the scope of the Second Amendment outside the home. So, Josh, if that's the case, though, why go through what would essentially almost be a charade of having an argument if it's so clear that the case is moot? Why, you know, make the parties go through this additional expense, extra time? You know, why not just uh, knock the thing off up front? Um, generally, the justices talk about these cases at conference, and I suspect if there are one or more justices who want to hear argument, they would proceed for what's effectively a charade. Uh, maybe the parties will bring forward arguments they didn't know about. Maybe something will change. Um, but at the Friday after the case is argued at the conference, I think at that point, the five to dismiss will come together. You know, the court routinely wastes people's time. <laughs> they argue cases once. They argue cases twice. Thousands of briefs for certiorari submitted that will never get granted. I don't think the justices lose much sleep over over forcing Paul Clement to argue another case. I think I think I think they'll, they'll move past it. Plus, it's already been you know a decade uh, since the last Second Amendment case, so another few months won't hurt, right? Yeah, what's well, another few months? Uh, although the key is they would still need to grant another case by maybe December or January to have it argued this year. That's the only other variable to think about. Right, and so okay, let's let's say hypothetically. We do wind up getting into the merits of this claim. You know, back in Heller, we had a case that was talking about self-defense in the home. In this case, looking at the New York City law, the former New York City and state law anyway, that involved going outside of the home, this aspect of 
where the challengers focus on the the bare arms part of the Second Amendment. But if we're going to get into the merits here, is it possible that you know that the court just says it doesn't extend the right outside of the home, Heller's inside of the home, and and that's it? The New York case is a very strange case. The New York law effectively said that in order to transport a gun outside your home, you had to get a special permit. But this case did not involve what you might call concealed carry or even open carry. Instead, the law requires you keep the gun in your car locked and disassembled. Um, Even if the court holds you have the right to keep a gun in your car locked and disassembled, that doesn't get you to what's even more, more, more usually the case is there a right to carry a gun on your person, right? Does the does the uh, government have an obligation to give you a permit, or can they decide it's discretionary? Those are the far more salient cases. Um, even if the court rules in favor of the pistol and rifle club here, I don't know how that, that affects other cases which have been percolating out for nearly a decade on the, on the courts. So one thing the court could could say um, that I think a lot of people both uh, on both sides of the gun issue are kind of uh, been asking for at different times is to put forth a test to actually, uh, you know, look at these kinds of gun regulations because none really exists so far. Um, Do you think that might be um, they might take this occasion to say something about how lower courts should even go about analyzing these gun restrictions? Right, Kimberly, you're asking the question of what's called scrutiny. Um, in District of Columbia versus Heller, the court largely avoid deciding how claims based on the Second Amendment should be reviewed. Uh, the court rejected what's known as rational basis scrutiny. Um, this is the concept that generally the courts will defer to the democratic process. But the court did not suggest that uh, a heightened scrutiny, you know, a strict scrutiny applies. They kind of left it open. Um, as a result, the lower courts have used what's known as intermediate scrutiny, which is somewhat deferential, but but not too deferential. Um, but the bottom line here is that almost all the federal gun control laws have been upheld. There are a few exceptions, but Heller has barely made a blip on our constitutional radar. Um, maybe the court can give more guidance. Maybe the court minus Justice Kennedy will be a little bit more protective of gun rights. Uh, I don't know where they're going to come out. I'm, I'm always pessimistic on these cases. So picking up on the the part about the, you know, post Kennedy era that we're in here now with Kavanaugh having replaced him, and and also following up on how you mentioned the New York law is you know kind of a weird one, and how the court wouldn't necessarily have a chance to say something broader about gun rights in terms of carrying them, but you know of course if the court does wind up making a decision in the case, they can do whatever they want, right? And so the question is to kind of you know game this out if they do wind up deciding the case on the merits, is it possible now that with Kavanaugh having replaced Kennedy, who I think the common wisdom is, was a big factor in uh, the Heller opinion being limited and stressing the fact that there are many gun restrictions that governments can still enact. Is it possible that with Kavanaugh now on the court, if there is going to be a marriage decision, can the court still take this case to say something sort of big about gun rights in a way that gun rights advocates would like? I hope so. Um, for years, people have wondered, was it Justice Kennedy that was sort of on the fence in gun cases? My pet theory is actually Chief Justice Roberts was on the fence. He seems very much pro-law enforcement. And he, uh, uh, if you go through the arguments in Heller, he had various doubts about applying strict scrutiny. Uh, so it would not surprise me if the court is exactly where it was last year uh, before Kennedy's retirement. Uh, we know Justice Kavanaugh uh, uh, favors a very rigid standard of review. Uh, he may be better on this than the chief is. 
Uh, but we won't know until we see what happens. And if the court dismisses the New York case and declines to take another case from, say, New Jersey, it could be another couple of years before we, another, before we get another gun case. And it'll be basically back to square one. Speaking of seeing what happens, um, we noticed that you had an interesting time trying to see what happened in the DACA arguments. Was that uh, kind of an event? Uh, you know, the word interesting <laughs> is not very descriptive. It's one the media likes to use. Well, it's a family podcast, Josh, so, you know, we have to keep it... Uh... You know, I have a piece in the Vol Conspiracy today. It's a three-part series. The rest will come out later this week. There are a couple ways of getting into the court. Um, the easiest way is if you know someone. If you have a reserve ticket or a reserve seat, you're in. Uh, if you're a member of the general public, you're going to have to wait a while. That is, people camp on the sidewalk outside the court for wow. days on end. And they're trying to get one of these 50 golden tickets. They're actually <laughs> golden color which allow you in. Um, but then there's a separate line for the bar. Uh, members of the bar are uh, given some sort of reserve seating, but they have to get there early enough. Um, I arrived at 3 o'clock in the morning. I was about number 21 on line. I waited for nearly six hours on that line. It was cold and raining. Um, when I got inside, somehow I became number 23 in the line. Uh, we'll, we'll leave to others to decide <laughs> how that happened. And I was... Uh, left out. I was the first person to miss wow. out on getting a ticket. Uh, fortuitously, um, a couple people didn't show up for reserve seats, so I was able to get into the court a little bit later. Uh, but the the current process is is quite broken. Um, I'll have a post on Volok later this week explaining some of my recommendations. But this is something that I trust the court will will look into because it's not uh, fair for members of its own bar to wait online at night for an indeterminate number of seats only to people cut them in line. That's not how this process should work. Well, that sounds uh, terrible. Uh, glad that you finally made it in. All right. Well, thank you so much. I think that's going to do it for us. Thanks for indulging our um, line standing questions. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you, Jordan. Well, that was interesting. Yeah, it's always good to have Josh on. You know, one of the things he mentioned or that we talked a lot about with him was, was this mootness question, which the Solicitor General had not originally weighed in on, right? Uh, but just recently told the court, hey, we have, a, we have an opinion and we'll tell you it at an oral argument. Very recently, sort of on a tough timeline, kind of a crazy timeline. <laughs> yeah, well, then the Supreme Court, you know, said, hey, we would like to hear about that before uh, before oral argument. Can you submit a brief by 6 p.m. today? Yeah, this is all happening on the same Friday afternoon, right? Yeah. At yeah. least looking at it from the outside, it looks like, in theory, it's the Solicitor General having to crank out this brief in an hour, but that's probably not what actually happened, right? Right, that's probably not what happened. They probably had a, a brief canned and they, you know told that they wanted to file it, but they couldn't just file it. So they kind of nudged the, the court, right? Yeah. And they had some stuff in their letter about they didn't totally agree with the challengers about everything, it seemed, right? I mean, they agreed that it's not moot because they could still seek damages. But then as to some of the other claims, it seems like they the government wasn't totally ready to sign on. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like they're only there on the damages part, which, as we mentioned with Josh, is troubling because they didn't actually seek damages. But. Right. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see if they think there's a case or controversy. Well, thank you all for listening again to Cases and Controversies. You can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hey, I'm Adam Allington. I'm the host of a new show from Bloomberg Environment called The Business of Bees. Here's what you need to know about it. We travel around the country talking to people at every corner of the honeybee ecosystem. This is the largest managed pollination event on Earth. 
In fact, commercial beekeeping is more important to farming than ever before. But bees are also under threat from pesticides and invasive pests and mysterious diseases. It's sort of like Christmas when you go to the hive in December and you open the lid. You just hope somebody's home. If you're interested in bees too, I think you might like the show. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.